This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Up until about 7.15 p.m., give or take, on Sunday, uh, he was, my next guest, was Danny Vandervoort of the McMaster Marauders. Now, after 7.15 p.m., he is Danny Vandervoort of the BC Lions. Uh, Mr. Vandervoort, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. appreciate it. I was watching uh, a clip afterwards of you standing there with your family waiting to hear your name, uh, looking like this was the greatest moment of all time, and it probably was. But I happen to notice, Danny, you were wearing a BC Lions hat. Had someone tipped you off, or did you just have a great intuition that that was going to happen at that moment? <laughs> no, they uh, they actually gave me a call while they were on the clock just telling me that, uh, that they decided to chose me. So uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't hold the emotions in, so... I ran into the room and uh, I told my parents, and someone tossed me a hat. Um, so then, yeah, I put it on. <laughs> it kind of uh, kind of ruined the surprise, but uh, I couldn't I couldn't hold it in. What was that phone call like? Because it's something I'm guessing you've wanted that phone call all your life. What was that like? Uh, it was incredible. Um, like I said, I've been working been working since I was eight years old um, for that moment. So it. Uh, there's a lot of emotions running through my mind, but uh, it was a cool feeling um, being drafted that early, the first uh, CIS player or U Sports player taken off the board. It uh, it was uh, it was amazing. Do you even remember what the words were that were said? Yeah, kind of very brief. Uh, I was not expecting that call that early, but uh, something along the lines of uh, "This is the BC um, from the BC Lions saying that uh, we decided chose you," and I. Uh, that's probably one of the yeah, exactly the, one of the greatest moments of my life so far. Had you had any real belief or any any real indication that BC was the team that was really looking at you? That you, I mean, you said you didn't expect to go that high, but had you thought BC was interested? Yeah, when I went to Regina um, in the interviews, I was talking to to Wally Bono and Giro Simon, and Wally actually said to me, "He's like Giro, he thinks that you're the best receiver in this draft, um, and that he wants me to draft you." And um, and he's like, well, I, he goes, I haven't seen enough film of you, so I'm not sure yet. But um, uh, we'll hopefully see tomorrow because that was before the one-on-ones and all the and all the testing and stuff. So I had a I had a good feeling they were interested. But the day before the draft, I got a I got a call from pretty much every team except for BC and Saskatchewan. So it was kind <laughs> of a little bit of a shocker, just because um, a couple people were telling me that usually the teams that call you are the most interested. But I guess BC was kind of trying to hide their cards and not uh, not tip anyone off that they were they were selecting me, which is pretty cool. I do have to ask, with your phone at that, nobody other than a team called you, right? Your friends at that point weren't calling you and causing you to go into a spasm because all of a sudden the <laughs> call had come. This was, they were the only ones who called? Yeah, yeah. I told uh, I told my friends that couldn't be there not to uh, try not to call me between <laughs> 7 and 8, but uh, most of my fa- friends and family were, were with me, so I knew that uh, anyone calling me during that time would be uh, the team I was going to, which was pretty cool. Now, I have to ask about that hat again. Did you have nine caps sitting around just in case which, <laughs> for every eventuality? Yeah, the the CFL actually sent a guy to kind of just be um, be with me on draft day, just kind of take everything in, and uh, he brought all nine caps from the CFL head office. Uh, so, yeah, we had them all lined up for, for any kind of team. Well, that's good because I was going to say if your mom or dad had to buy those, they're not cheap. They're like thirty bucks a pop. There's two hundred and seventy bucks in caps, and only one of them's any good to you anymore. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I know. Uh, I know. We only took the two BC hats, and we're kind of 
I'm looking at a box full of full of other teams, kind of being like, "Well, what do we do with these now?" So, <laughs> how stre- how stressful though, Danny? Not just that night, not just Sunday night, but in general, this whole thing leading up to because it's been. I mean, it's a long process from the time that you finish your CIS, your U Sports season. Um, you've gone through NFL camps, you've gone to the Regina, the, the uh, combine, uh, you've done all kinds of things. Is this, is it extremely stressful or are you pretty relaxed about the whole thing all the way? Um, I wouldn't say I'm relaxed, but, uh, you get a little bit of stress just because you don't really know where you're going, but at the end of the day, you're playing football and, uh, and anything that drafts you is a, is a dream come true, really, um. I love I love the early mornings and the late nights, um, working out, training. Um, I was working out with Mac with all my friends um, and my roommate, Mark Mackey. So I was, we had a good group training this year. So um, I'm proud of all the other guys that uh, they got drafted, Mark and Fabian. Um, we had a good group training, and I think that uh, we'll be able to, to make it in camp. But do you have, I mean, as you're going through everything and when you're doing meetings with teams and when you're doing all the stuff that you go through, are you, honestly, are you trying to read minds and read tea leaves and figure out which guys, which scouts are really liking you or, I mean, or, or do you, I mean, or do you just say, ah, wherever I go? Cause I, it's your life. You're, this is where you're going to be for the next little while. I have to believe there's some interest in who's going to take you. Yeah, for sure. At the, yeah. At the end of the day, this is a, this is a job too. The CFL is a business. So you kind of, um, when we were at, when we were in Regina, kind of every, everything you do and everything you did, we kind of, um, these are your employers, right? You have, uh, everyone looking at you nonstop. So you do try and try and see if you can get anyone kind of tipping you off, like whether, what team needs what and, uh, who needs receivers and stuff. So you kind of do your research, but, um, at the end of the day, you kind of, um, you just, you, you, it was a good surprise to, to be selected by BC. How much research had you done? Like not at the, at the combines, or whatever, when you're sitting at home looking at rosters and stuff, how much had you looked at, okay, they need somebody and they do, and they don't. I mean, do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of just looking around just because, um, some teams at the draft kind of were saying that they, they weren't interested in drafting receiver and some teams, um, obviously said they were. So I just kind of looked at the rosters, see how many they had, um, um, and yeah, and I kind of narrowed it down to to BC, Hamilton, and uh, and Winnipeg. That kind of were the top three that uh, that I thought were interested. But once again, it, uh, I'm really excited to go to BC. It's a, it's a cool city too. Well, let let's mention Hamilton for just a second because a lot of rumors had been floating around that you might land there. They had the very next pick after you were taken, and from what we understand. If I understand correctly, what was said, they were probably going to take you next if you had fallen to number four, fallen to number four. That's you know, y- you can take falling to number four all day long. But um, <laughs> but if you had had you thought because you played in Hamilton, you know Hamilton, you've you've probably been to Ticat games, you've played at Tim Hortons Field. Had you given any thought beforehand to what that might be like if the hometown team were to have drafted you? Yeah, uh, go, the days going into the draft, you kind of see mock drafts and and people trying to thinking. Where everyone's gonna go, and, and most of them actually said that I was going number four to to Hamilton. So I, yeah, I was kind of um, I I actually thought I was gonna go there. Um, that's where kind of my parents thought, and all my friends and family were kind of talking at the draft, like, oh, where do you think you're gonna go? Kind of trying to feel me out, people that uh, that don't know football too much. But yeah, it was. Uh, I had a I had a house there, and uh, my roommates and everyone that that I was gonna go at Mac and. I was thinking about maybe my old room staying there, but uh, <laughs> well, you could have just uh, you could have just uh, moved into Potassic's basement, in Dundas. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I, I have to believe that he was probably, and I mean, he'll never admit it, I, I'm guessing, but I'm betting that he was in the Ticat meeting saying, hey, you know, this guy's not bad. This Vanderbilt guy's not a bad player. I, I've seen him up close. Mm-hmm. I yeah, mean, that, that would have worked for you. Yeah, for sure. We actually, uh, me and Mackie, we kept back with uh, Coach Potasic after the uh, the combine because we were on the same flight. And uh, we were kind of just asking him questions about how everything went. And, um, of course, he was being Coach P very... Uh, very uh, kind of hush hush about everything. I guess he's very, he couldn't tip us off about anything, but we were just asking how we did and everything. And uh, yeah, and he was just kind of saying we did good, but nothing, uh, nothing too leading. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, he's got a good poker face when he wants to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Danny, one of the things that um, that was interesting about this year with McMaster, well, there were two parts of it. Uh, first of all, you banged up your knee a little bit, so you missed some playing time, but also the team went to a much more run-based offense than they had the previous few years. So you had less opportunities. The ball was thrown to you a little bit less than it had been. As the year is going on, and you want to play in the CFL and you want to get drafted, were there times during the year when you're wondering to yourself whether that was going to affect your draft position? I mean, obviously it didn't, but did you wonder that as the year went on? Uh, yeah, I wondered that a little bit, just with the uh, first two games I had good stats and... Um... And after the second, the second, um, or actually the first, it was the first mock draft. I was uh, ranked number four, and then kind of right after that, the UFT game, we kind of um, kind of switched the offense and try to go to more of a balanced. But at the end of the day, the scouts know what, uh, what my capabilities are. They've seen the film from the past years and and even the first couple games. Um, but I think the the rest of the season kind of showed my uh, my ability to block. Well, it did. It did, but you're putting, again, you kind of, you've said, well, the scouts know, but that's putting a lot of, this is your future, this is your life, that's putting a lot of faith in the scouts that they're going to, and I know they're good at what they do, but Mm -hmm. that they're going to see beyond the obvious. The last few years when the ball is coming to you all the time and you can make circus catches and score record numbers of touchdowns, which you did, Mm -hmm. that's really easy to say, hey, he's a really great receiver, we need to have him. Yeah. But when you're not catching the ball as much, not because you're dropping it, just because it's not coming, I... Again, I got. I have to believe that there's a little bit of doubt in your mind that this might be affecting you. It's hard, though. It's hard when you're winning. Um, of course, we were we were consistently winning games. So um, you look at the 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 scouting report going in and what we were planning to do, and we end up having a great season. So it's tough to complain, really, when uh, when you're winning football games at the end of the day. So what do you do now? Um, are you still in Hamilton right now? No, I uh, or in Barrie. And Barry, yeah, okay. I am uh, just training with a couple ex-football guys. Um, one of the guys that coached me in Stallions actually runs a gym, so um, it's called APS. I'm actually going to go. Um, I'm training. I've been training there, so it's a good uh, good facilities there. And, and then uh, when do you head out to BC, or do you know yet? Yeah, they actually sent me the whole itinerary and schedule and everything, just some some my passport information and information. I fly out the uh, the 24th is then uh, rookie camp, so it's the 25th. And when they send out that stuff, along with the cap, have they already said you already have a bunch of BC Lions stuff to wear, or are you still uh, still a civilian until you get there? <laughs> I guess uh, being so far away, um, they haven't really said anything yet, but uh, I do have the, the couple hats, but I guess when we get there, we'll get the uh, players package. I know, I mean, I know how you look in maroon. How do you look in orange? I like it. It's a good look. I like the colors. <laughs> the, uh, the black and orange look good. It is. Uh, by the way, before I let you go, are, I can't remember, are there any of your McMaster... Teammates, former teammates, current, whatever, who are on BC? 
Yeah, there's actually not a teammate of mine, but a former Marauder, uh, Jason Arachai. Okay, right. Arachi, he's the uh, CFL leading special teams tackler. But you never played with him? I know he's quite a bit older than me, but uh, it'll be good to have another Marauder out there. Well, and you know what? Uh, Playing all your games at BC Place, there may be maybe some fond memories of that building for you. Yeah, actually, that was the year Oh, was that the year before you? Yeah, that was the year before me. Oh, well, it was worth a shot. (laughs) <laughs> but for a lot of them, Rod, when they come to visit you, let's say, when they, yeah, when your teammates come to visit, yeah, yeah, yeah. they will have a lot of fond memories a of that place of, yeah, while watching you. Exactly, exactly. Danny Vandervoort, listen, congratulations. Great, uh, great that you went that high. Obviously says an awful lot about what all the CFL thinks of you and what you've done here at McMaster, and uh, I appreciate the time. Look forward to watching you. Thank you. Appreciate you for having me. That is Danny Vandervoort, third overall pick. And yes, of course, he was the year after thought of that off the top of my head, the question, and realized, hmm, no, missed it by... But a BC place, by the way, for those who aren't catching on what I'm saying, was the building where the McMaster Marauders in 2011 won their Vanier Cup, the Kyle Quinlan game, the Tyler Crepinia field goal in overtime, that kind of thing. Yeah, that was uh, that was BC place. So for most McMaster fans and players and alumni, BC place holds some warm, fuzzy feelings. That was this the site of their greatest ever victory. The school's greatest ever victory was right there, and now he gets to play there every home game. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. This weekend is Mother's Day. That's fair warning. But there's also something else going on this weekend related to Mother's Day. That is the Save the Mothers Mother's Day Walk, which is going on at various places all over the, the country and the world, really. Save the Mothers, for those of you who have heard of it, you will, you'll know the, the work it does. For those of you who don't know, Save the Mothers is an organization that works to cut back on infant mortality in the developing world, to make childbirth and women's health issues safer, make things better, basically, for women who, in a lot of countries, as you could probably imagine, don't get treated exactly as equal citizens, don't necessarily get the same opportunities health-wise. And so this is a group that has been started by a Hamilton woman, by Dr. Jean Chamberlain, to to do that. And she is, she has been overseas. She's been doing this for years. And this is a good news thing. The Mother's Day walk is to raise money for it, but it's also a bit of a celebration because Dr. Jean Chamberlain, after years of living overseas, more, most recently for I don't know, a dozen years, maybe something like that. She'll correct me. In Uganda, uh, she and her family have now moved home, is going to set up home base here in Hamilton. Uh, she joins me now, Dr. Chamberlain. Thanks for doing this tonight. Great. Thanks very much, Scott. It's good uh, to be here. The fact that you're back home now and you, Africa is now, well, sort of in the rearview mirror. You're going to be going back and forth now and again, but is that exciting or is that a little bittersweet after you've been there that long? Oh, I think it's a little bittersweet uh, when Africa's in your heart. It's always in your heart and anybody who's visited there I will always say the same thing, but uh, I'm I'm still regularly in touch with um, the leadership there. In fact, I was on the phone today uh, with a couple of them, uh, so that's the great thing about telecommunications now that uh, you can so easily uh, stay connected with people there. I do have to, I do have to ask you when you've lived because you live about eight or nine months of the year over there. You have for the last decade or so. When you live in the developing world for most of the year, even though you're from here, and you come home after that time, is it? Odd. Does it feel weird to come back to a first world country when you've been in the developing world for that much of the year? I think the thing that really strikes you, Scott, is just um, the diversity or the, the, the distance between 
uh, life there and life here. Um, you know, I just see people there struggling uh, to get their children to get to primary school. And here, you know, we just don't think a thing of it. You know, it's, what's my kid going to wear to school tomorrow? It's not like, do I have enough money to send them to school? Or, you know, my child is sick, do I have enough money to... Uh, take them to the hospital. I mean, again, in Canada, and I work at St. Joseph's Hospital, um, you know, you, you people just don't think a thing of it. They go to multiple doctors, and, and it just isn't on their radar of how much this is actually costing. In the developing world, people walk into the hospital with the money, or they don't walk in at all. I want to get to that in just a second, but just to be clear, the fact that you're back here, you are relocating, not quitting. You're still very much involved. Was this the plan all along that you were going to set things up over there, get going, get things in place, and then step away and let the local people run it? Well, Scott, I've been overseas now 17 years, uh, 12 years in Uganda, and then five years in Yemen before that. And I think the one observation I would make about organizations that go and work in developing countries is it's so easy for people to become dependent on the person from, you know, outside of their country, the expat, whatever you want to call us, uh, coming and doing the work. And I, the real vision of Save the Mothers was Indigenous leadership development. In other words, people within the country, within East Africa, we work in Uganda, but we reached out to all of East Africa, Tanzania, Rwanda, Southern Sudan, uh, Kenya. Um, it's The idea is to develop leadership there. And so it was really important for me also to step back from the main leadership. Yes, I'm still a cheerleader. Yes, I am still very much involved. But the person who's now at the forefront for East Africa is a Ugandan obstetrician gynecologist who I've known actually for almost 12 years and is very competent and can do the work uh, with me really helping to cheer on the side. Well, that's what I was going to ask next, because when you do step away, um, is the training that they would get that the doctors, the nurses, the medical people in that part of the world, is it at an acceptably high enough level that they can do this, that they could take over for you and, and, and run the program in a way that you can say, I can safely step back and this is going to still operate? Well, I think the unique thing about the Save the Mothers program is that we're not just training medical professionals. In fact, there already are universities there that are training nurses, midwives, doctors. But the challenge is you don't have an infrastructure there uh, where you have hospitals that are adequately staffed. You don't have hospitals that are adequately equipped sometimes you don't even have a hospital or you have attitudes within the community that it's kind of like well you know delivering a baby is like a battle and some women come in to the battle alive and you know survive others come in alive but they don't survive and so it's really more it's that it's that sort of flippant sometimes the attitude um i don't think it's flippant as much as it's just that's the way life is and scott you know people there lose friends and family so easily, like I, uh, you know, even had a colleague whose husband, she's a, she was from Paris, and you know, her husband just suddenly died of this bizarre, you know, fever uh, when she, when she was there, and so those kinds of things happen. So people have just learned to accept life and death so much easier, and you know, in some ways they're they're more free, like they just enjoy life because they know they may not have life next week, you know. So which is kind of a bit of a converse um, from here at times, but. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that they don't know differently. At least the village people would out in the rural areas, certainly in the in the larger cities, um, you know, they've been more exposed to kind of quote unquote Western life. But I think there's just this fatalism that you know it happens, and if, if it's God's will that that mother died, it was God's will. Instead of sort of saying, well, no, I don't think it's God's will. It was God's will that we should do something with the technologies that we have 
uh, to save that mother's life. And that's really what the Save the Mothers program is trying to do, is bring change to culture. So using the educational system, using the media, using the religious communities to get the messages out there that mothers in 2017 can be saved. There's medication, there's treatment available, there's a skilled uh, person who can care for that mother so that if she has a complication, uh, her life can be saved. And it's not just a matter of, well, I hope it goes well. But that's, but Gene, what you're talking about is healing someone or fixing someone physically, protecting them physically is a lot easier than changing a philosophy or a belief or a mindset. And that sounds like what you're trying to do is change an entire way of thinking. But that's why I was there for 12 years, I think, really helping to get that program started, because that's how much time it took. And Scott, it wasn't until really the last five years that we've all of a sudden started to see now a real reduction in the number of mothers who've died. In fact, I'm just ecstatic to say that the rates of mothers dying has gone down 25% in Uganda in the in the last five years. Wow. The first five years, not much change. And I always said to people, you know what, I'm not going to be surprised if it doesn't change, because it's more than just building a clinic. It's about developing that sense of, yeah, we need this mother's life to be saved. We need to get her to a safe place. And um, and so that, that really takes time uh, for that to happen. You can't legislate people. I mean, okay, maybe if you're a communist state, you can, but it, that, is, that doesn't work in Africa. Uh, they're very much the community, and so we need to work with the community to say what can we be doing for a safe motherhood. So we offer this Masters of Public Health Leadership training Indigenous East African leaders members of parliament, journalists, social scientists, religious leaders, teachers, who become educated about safe motherhood and then go back into their spheres of influence and bring about change. And, you know, we've had new legislation for safe motherhood. We've had uh, schools take on this issue where they, they, they learn themselves, but then they go out and educate other kids through singing and dancing and, and, and plays and that sort of thing. You see it in the media where people are now talking about uh, mothers um, being safe and what they can be doing uh, to save those mothers. I mean, you're someone who has, well, I'll throw this out there. You've hobnobbed with the glitterati. You've had an order of Canada. You've, you've hung around. You've had meetings with Stephen Harper when he was prime minister. I mean, that's not your normal everyday cocktail party life, I understand. But are you comfortable when you go overseas, when you have to deal with a politician or with a leader of the country? Or is it not you who does it? Is it someone from there? Like how to, to make this kind of change and to get laws changed, it's not just with the people at the low end. You need to have the top people in a country, the senior brass, how do you convince them that this needs to happen? Because I'm guessing that their kids and their wives are not the ones who are at risk. So how do you convince them, the people who make the decisions that things have to change? Well, interestingly, even sometimes those very affluent people are also at risk because they're going into a hospital that's not properly equipped. And so even the rich can sometimes also um, be at risk as well too. But I think my role over the last 12 years has really been to be a coach to some of these people. And, you know, Scott, nobody wants their mothers to die. No country wants to see their mothers um, perishing of preventable pregnancy complications. So, you know, there's definitely people there who want to see change, but they don't know how to make it happen. And I think that's um, really what my role has been, is helping to coach them, encourage them, give them the information, along with others who have been helping me in the program as well. I'm certainly not alone. And really seeing those leaders, I remember going to an international meeting for Safe Motherhood, and one of my graduates from Save the Mothers program, she's a journalist, and she was up there talking in front of hundreds of people, and I'm out there in the crowd just watching my student, you know, with my jaw on the floor, just really excited that that is the person who needs to speak for East Africa, isn't East African. 
Uh, because otherwise, if we're coming in from the West, there's always a misperception of why are you here? What is it you're really trying to do? Um, but, um, but again, by developing those leaders there, then they're able to go um, to places that I'd never be able to go. You mentioned a moment ago that the numbers of deaths are down about 25% in the last five years. What were they when you showed up? I mean, as far as, do you know what the numbers were then and what they are now as far as actual numbers? Well, they, they talk about rates, and so for every 100,000 mothers who die, who, sorry, who delivered, every 100,000 who delivered, uh, 435 were dying. Now, in Canada, that number is 10 per, per 100,000. So there it was 435, and here in Canada it was 10. Now, today, it's 333 in Uganda, and again, in Canada, it's still around 10. Now, of course, 333 is still far too many, so we've got a long way to go. Uh, so my job and the job of my uh, graduates in East Africa is still very much real. But the reality is at least there is a change. And I think that's what we're celebrating is that there's a change. But we're reminded that we still have a long way to go. And, of course, the number of infants that die as well, too, as a result of unsafe motherhood is huge. Like if a mother's in labor for three days, guess what? Her baby is probably not going to make it. It comes out alive, has a couple breaths, and then unfortunately dies. So so we've got still a long way to go. And that's why really this weekend uh, with um, the uh, Mother's Day walk across um the world really we've got even uh, a walk in cardiff uk um all the way across to, to vancouver uh we're trying to continue to raise uh monies for leadership development as well as working in the hospitals the um, save the mothers program is now working with 10 hospitals in uganda and another couple in tanzania as well too with our what we call the mother baby friendly hospital and the idea is to make sure that mothers have a safe and a dignified delivery at the hospital, so we have 10 steps to ensure, you know, a checklist of, of really making sure that women uh, get the care that they need. And um, so that's the other program that the Save the Mothers is sponsoring uh, in East Africa. So that's why we really need people's support this weekend to uh, continue the fight to bring that number from 333 down to let it be 10, like Canada. Well, the things that, of those 333, the things that women and children, women in childbirth and then infants are dying of, would the thing would would they be things that in Canada we would say are very easily solvable, or are there unique health problems over there that we don't see here that make it way more complicated? Like, would we, if you were in Canada and you walked into the hospital, would you say that's that's a simple solution, or would it still be very complicated? It, it would be it would be very treatable. Um, you know, having access to blood. I mean, I've worked here already at St. Joseph's Hospital, and there's been numerous women that have needed blood. Uh, you know, that that's unfortunately with childbirth, that sometimes happens that women bleed, and no matter how much you treat them at the time, they still bleed too much that they actually need a transfusion. Well, if there isn't transfusion there, it's kind of like your car. You can get up in the morning, if there's no gas in the car, and no matter how much you wish for that car to move, it's not going to move. And a woman who doesn't have enough blood, it's like she doesn't have a, a gas in the car, um, she, she's going to uh, expire or die. So uh, those simple things like having blood banks, which, again, to us doesn't sound really that complicated, but it's complicated enough. I mean, you have to have the equipment there. You have to have the ability to do a safe cesarean section. So you have to have the skilled person there. You have to have the equipment. You have to have the sutures. All those things need to be there. So they're very attainable. The question is people having access to them. And, you know, this may sound like a funny joke, but really, you know, when I'm in Uganda, there is no Tim Hortons. Like, I'm in withdrawal when I'm in, in Uganda because there's no Tim Hortons because there's simply no access to Tim Hortons there. Whereas you come here to Canada, there's there's so, so many. So it, it is just a matter of access, people being able to access something that, yeah, Tim Hortons is a great, <laughs> great, but 
that, that's not a human right. A human right is that a woman should not die from a preventable pregnancy complication in 2017 in our global community because we're a small community. Anybody who's listening by voice could hop on the plane with me and in you know two short flights be standing right beside those women. Can you, okay, you're down by 25%. Realistically, how much further is it how much further is it realistic to believe that you can drop the mortality rate over there? I mean, is it is it realistic think, to say another 25%? I think we can easily come down another 25% over the next 5 years. I think that should be a very reasonable goal is is to come down 25%. And and actually the um uh, uh development goals that we had earlier um, they were the Millennium Development Goals were supposed to be a decrease in maternal mortality in all countries over uh, 15 years. It was supposed to be a reduction of 75%. So that's pretty close, 25, 25, 25 over the next um, uh, 15 years. I'd love, I'd love to see that. Well, part of that, part of the way to help, if people who are listening are interested in helping, and I mean, look, it's Mother's Day. Uh, it doesn't have to be your mother necessarily that you help. It could be someone else's mother. Um, you, This Mother's Day walk has actually become huge. If I counted right on your website, you have 19 locations now, as you say, from Cardiff, Wales, to Newfoundland, California, Texas, Montana, Quebec, Toronto, and of course, uh, 8.30 a.m. Saturday at Dundas Driving Park and 9.30 at Valley Park in Stony Creek, uh, both on Saturday morning, if you are interested in going. Um, just very quickly, Gene, before we let you go, where does the money go? The money that's raised from that, what will it do? Well, it'll help with these hospitals, with the mother-baby friendly hospitals, and then it'll help with this leadership development where we're training these multidisciplinary um, East Africans to really be ongoing champions uh, for safe motherhood. And, you know, I just encourage people, Scott, if they uh, can't make it to the walk, please go on the website and donate and just tell your mom, you know what, I gave X number of dollars uh, in honor of you, and and that's going to help a mother. And, you know, as a mother myself, I can't think of anything I'd rather know than something was given to help another mother um, who otherwise might uh, die. So just encourage people to see savethemothers.org is our main website, or if you're interested in the walk particularly, it's walkformothersday.com. Dr. Gene Chamberlain, always appreciate having you on. Always uh, appreciate the work you're doing to uh, help people around the world. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much, Scott. It is um, something to consider. If you're do- not doing anything Saturday morning and you want to do something that can actually be meaningful and it takes a couple hours, I'm going to be there. I'm helping MC. I've always agreed to do this. Every year I agree to do it because I think it's a very worthwhile thing to do. I believe in what they're doing. Uh, not being paid anything, by the way. Um, but... I. Saturday morning, 8.30 at Dundas Driving Park or 9.30 a.m. at Valley Park in Stony Creek. If you are interested in doing something on Mother's Day weekend to have an actual impact on mothers around the world. When you listen to the number of people that are still in Uganda and other places that are developing parts of the world that are still dying completely unnecessarily, it seems. Makes some sense to try and do something. And again, if you can't make it, I will put in a pitch here. Uh, save the mothers, save the mothers, plural, dot org. You could make a donation there. If you can't make it out and you wanted to help, you can do it in honor of your own mother. And I think she would be quite thrilled that you did something to help people around the world in her name. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Back in the early 1990s, at the height of much music's impact on the popular culture, there was this guy from Hamilton who got a ton of airplay for his music. Ray Lyle, I mean, he had the look, he had the long, beautiful hair. I'm still envious of the hair 
that he had back then, although he still has pretty good hair now. Uh, but he was also making it as a Canadian star because he wrote great songs. When I first moved to Hamilton, I came to Hamilton to live uh, in 1989. I wore out a copy of his self-titled debut album, Ray Lyle and the Storm. And then after a few albums, he kind of seemed to go away, kind of. You didn't hear about him all that much. Well, I bumped into him the other day at an event. And it prompted me to go on Apple Music and start listening to his music again. And it reminded me of just how good that stuff was. The songs really hold up. The music is good. And musically, the lyrics are not insignificant. They're, they're well thought out. They're, they're deep sometimes. They're meaningful. They're not just throwaway lyrics. Well, I said, let's get him on here because I, he's still around doing stuff. And I wanted to get him on here because uh, I am a fan and because I think probably many of you are too. Ray Lyle joins us now. Ray, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. Are you okay, by the way, when someone introduces you and says, you know, he kind of went away for a little bit. Is that sort of what happened? Well, I guess in, in a lot of people's eyes I did, or let's put it this way, in a lot of people's ears I did. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm I still around, as far as I'm concerned. I'm did, pinching myself right now. I'm here. Well, and I want to get to all the stuff you've been doing in a couple of minutes, but let, let's go back to that time when you first hit a big, because again, you, you were on, on Much Music. I mean, if you turned on Much Music almost any day, you would have seen Ray Lyle. Did you like being a rock star? Uh, it had its perks. <laughs> <laughs> You know, but the the thing was, uh, I, you know, I, I always this is the way I always thought of things is, is is the fact that the people that put you there are the people that buy the records. I could never understand why, uh, you know, a lot of these people they call themselves rock stars or or they you know they they put themselves on a pedestal. I have no idea why because I mean to me it was it was you, you owed the people the best show you could you could put on you you owe them the best album you could do because they were the ones that were supporting you to me it was a team it wasn't that i was that i was this icon it's just we're you know everybody that supports us we were all this team that that just you know wanted to have some good music is it easy or was it easy and i guess it's a past tense and a present tense is it easy was it easy to be a musical artist in canada and make a go of it no, I don't think it's e- I don't think it's easy anywhere. I just think that the good Lord smiles on you, and that's what uh, that's what kind of takes you over the top. Because I mean, it's 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 so far. There's just so much that has to go into your favor in order for you to to make it anywhere. To have radio airplay, to have video airplay, to make money at it. There just has to be so much that uh, that just goes well for you. And in today's world, I mean, the digital recording is. Is so easy to copy that very few musicians are really making any money on as far as as far as airplay rolls. He's what do you think? Uh, you know, uh, record companies have brought back vinyl because it's it's. I've I've always said this: relationship is what sells. So in the you know in the early '70s when vinyl was out, you really looked forward to the album because it was it was something that you could take home and there was uh, you could get to know the artist through through the the record. Um, the record sleeves and there's always a little bit of stories and the lyrics and it was all it was really something it was a collector's item and then when cds came out it wasn't as it wasn't as good um you know and today with where music can be copied so easy uh you know there's not a lot of royalty money there so they're they're starting to bring back violent hopefully to get back into the relationship between the artist and the listener but were you a guy who was um comfortable right away with the fact that suddenly because of much music i guess in a lot of ways you were someone who would have walked down the street i guess uh and people all of a sudden knew who you were and not everybody loves that were you were you good with that or was that a bit of a thing to get used to 
it was it was something to get used to because it literally seemed like it was overnight. But we spent ten years on the road playing every <laughs> nook and cranny, so it wasn't a it wasn't a situation where uh, all of a sudden you know, we were this this success. I mean, it, it was gradual, and then when the airplay took off and the uh, the videos took off, then then we started getting recognition. But but uh, we had uh, we had played to every kind of audience up until that point. Well, as I mentioned uh, a few moments ago when I was, I was bringing you in here, I went back in the last few days, ever since I bumped into you and started listening to the earlier stuff over uh, a bunch of times. I've, I've gone through the album, I don't know, 10 times again since then because I was going to listen to it once to remind myself and then just caught got caught listening again and again. It's amazing stuff. And, and probably no song is better and no song probably do people know better. Let me play a little bit of this one, a song called Carry Me that you wrote. Yep. I heard about a gambling man who lost his house in a poker game and he said one day I'm gonna find myself a winning hand who will stop all over again so he took a little trip to a Vegas hotel to try his luck on a roulette wheel well, that day his touch was about as cold as hell he lost everything That is um, one of the, I mean, is there a song that you've done that more people know of than that one, Ray? I think it's between that. There's actually three of them that people know. The, the, it, I, Carry Me is one of them. Another Man's Gun is another one. And Gypsy Wind, probably a lot of people know that song as well. The thing about that song, and for people who may not remember it, there there are three stories in there. It's three sort of stories of hopelessness. And it's a, it's, you would think it's a pretty hopeless song. It's actually very uplifting. Uh, y- that must have been the song that you built the album around. You spent hours writing that and days writing that and built everything around that? No, actually, Carry Me was in the last session. Um, and it was uh, actually Another Man's Gun and Carry Me was in the last session of the album that we, we threw together quickly. Um, we we thought we had the album and, and those two songs were kind of like uh, along. So we uh, all of a sudden we put them on the record. And not probably not thinking then that they were going to do anything. Just well, they were going to be there. I, they were going to fill I, a spot. I knew. I knew another man's gun was going to lead the album. I. I don't know why. It just everywhere we played that song, it went over really well. Same with Carry Me, but uh, I, I knew that another man's gun had to lead the album. And that's that's what did happen. But this song, I understand, Carry Me, and again, it's a it's a it's a very. Um, I'm trying to think of what the word the right word would be for this, but I mean, it, it's had, as I understand it, an impact beyond just the fact that it's a great tune. It still does. It's, I mean, it's definitely the longest living tune of the record. Uh, every time it gets airplay, I, I get emails in saying that, um, you know, this song really helped me out in a rough time. Or I've had a lot of people also that have, you know, been on the verge of, of taking their own life and, uh, and carrying me, got them through. I, I'll never understand it because I didn't write it with that in mind. Um, but you know, it definitely has, uh, gone on to do um, some amazing things. You didn't, when you wrote that, you didn't think that it would have that impact or can you ever think a song will have that impact? No, I, I think if you really try to write a song that, that is going to have that impact, it's, you won't be able to do it. 
it was it was actually just something it was it was three stories three real stories that I wrote about and I put them on the you know put them in the song I never thought it was going to have that impact and then it was shortly after this song was released I had I had back then some you know fan mail that came in and and all, all these uh all these situations and and it actually scared me because I thought wow I started to realize the power of music I started to realize man as a songwriter we have a responsibility to our listeners that uh, we have to be careful what we you know what we put out there because uh, people are really listening and they're going to interpret um what they want out of it and uh, so yeah, it actually scared me You've actually, though, truly had people who say that they had considered taking their life and this song has given them a, a rethink? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, more, quite, a, quite a few, actually. I think one of, the, one of the best stories I remember is being up in Owen Sound and I was doing an acoustic set. This is going back about maybe 20 years ago. And uh, I remember playing, and playing on the stage and I could tell this one guy was actually really looking intently at me and I thought, oh, no, am I going to have a problem? You know, at the end of the set, you know, he comes up and he's this big, tough guy and, and uh, he looks and he says, you know, are you Ray Lyle? And I said, well, maybe. <laughs> well, he, uh, you know, he says to me, I, I just want to thank you. And I says, why? He says, well, I was, in, I was in prison in Spain for two years and he said, and over there, it's not like jail here. He says, they put food in the courtyard and there's not enough for people to eat. And, uh, you know, I basically, I, I became ruthless to try and get at this food. And I thought to myself, oh, I don't want to live like this. So he said, I had it planned. I had the bed sheets hanging from the rafters. And he says, he says uh, that afternoon, your tape came in from my parents. They sent me your tape and they, they said, why don't you listen to the song? And he said, Carrie, me got me through two years of prison. And he said, wow. I just want to thank you for that. And that's, that's one story. There's, there's many more. Does that, when you, when you hear something like that, does that, I mean, obviously it impacted him. Does it impact you as well when you hear that? Of course. You know, you, you want to write another one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you true. Know, but, but you I probably can't. Do that yet, you know, so. But that's I've right. always thought, Ray, I've always thought, and this will never happen to me because I'm not a musician and people can be thankful they don't hear me sing, but it's never going to happen to me. But I've always thought one of the coolest things that you could experience was being on stage and having people sing your song back to you. I was thinking this last year when I saw Paul McCartney, and now in every song, people are singing his what he created back to him. But I have to think that this, what you're just describing, would be right up there in the same vein, that that would be a really cool thing to have known that I, I made something that made a difference in people's life. Well, I, I, I honestly believe that, you know, I, I did, I composed it, but I mean, it's, it's God that actually takes it and plants it in people's lives. It's not me. So it, I can't take credit for that. I did not write it with that intent. And, uh, you know, it's just the good Lord working it to, uh, to, uh, you know, the people that need it. But, uh, as far as, as far as being on stage and having people sing your songs, there's a downfall to that too, because when they start singing the wrong lyrics, <laughs> you start singing the wrong lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't thought of that, but at least they know the tune, right? Um, but yeah. you, at some point, and I don't know exactly when it was, early, mid-2000s, I guess, or maybe even before then, you made a change. You it, uh, Clearly, you stepped away from the rock and roll life. Why? No, I didn't I didn't really step away. This is about 1996, 1997. We, we probably ran our gamut. Um, the, the, you know, our, our last album didn't do very well, and, and it's like anything else. The business of music is no different than any other business. We... Uh, we just couldn't sustain the, the success rate. So I had to do something else. I ended up becoming a vocal coach for 20 years and doing uh, some writing on the side and working with working with people and, and students, which was quite rewarding. 
And uh, then, I guess about five years ago, I started doing some missionary work, and that's what I do now. Well, you took, uh, what's I, what I really found interesting is uh, you took the Carry Me name um, as a theme, and you now have a, a ministry called Carry Me Ministry. Yep, Carry Me, Carry Me Global Ministries, that's right. Which does what? Uh, well, right now what I do is I, I mentor quite a few people. I, I work with a youth impact center in Dunville, and I mentor a lot of young people. Um, we help people in crisis, like uh, if there's a family in crisis or um, that, that really uh, needs something or they need, um, the, uh, again, it's a, sometimes it's a little bit of mentoring and taking, taking, taking kids places where they, they would never, ever get to go. I always believe because of traveling with the band that really opened my eyes to, uh, to the world and, and let me see a lot of the possibilities. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I was, I was meeting some kids that they didn't know what the word hope meant. They, they had no idea about a dream. They just thought, why, why dream? It's never going to come true. And so uh, I had this, this one program called Get Out of Town where I'd, I'd take kids to a place like Florida or someplace where they, they would never be able to get to go. And so they all of a sudden fill their mind and they see uh, they see things and potentials in their life that, again, they just wouldn't have and, and uh, get them out of the environment they're living in. So, uh, th- I mean, it's, it's moved on from there to actually doing some mentoring on Skype to some people in third world countries. And I mean, it's, it's going on. It's just uh, it's actually doing really, really well. Uh, so that's that's what Carry Me does. But it is such a, well, maybe it's not, but it seems like it is such a long way from, again, living that sort of rock star life to being a guy who is now on Skype talking to people in the third world and helping. Maybe it's not that big a stretch, but I don't know too many other people who have done it. Well, you know, as, as I said before, the, the, the whole part about recording music and playing music and, and, you know, being in concert is, to me, was a relationship with the people. That's what meant more to me than actually getting out there. I don't care if people clap. I care that I get to talk to them after the show and we can, uh, we can you know, whatever, just be talk about life. And uh, to me, that was traveling around, meeting new people was always what really uh, made it worth it. So to me, ministry is the same way. I get to serve people. I get to be with people. I get to build relationships. I get to get into their lives and them into mine and, and uh, you know, help each other. What about all the people that had been in the band? Your band was originally called uh, The Storm. Uh, I understand that that you had to sort of give that up because, what was it, a lawsuit or something that someone... Well, no, it wasn't a lawsuit. We just owned the name for Canada, okay. and, and the, there was a all band, right. ex-journey members at The Storm in, in the state, so uh, we, we gave it up for them to, to come into Canada. So far, last year, we, we got together again after 26 years. We... Uh, reunited the band and we were playing a few dates we we still call ourselves Ray Lyle in the storm well, let them come after us. <laughs> <laughs> you know? was that no uh, was that was those were those shows before or after the 160 kilometer walk you did for charity which again I've not heard of any other former rock star doing this to to walk just by himself apparently uh around the city of Hamilton and parts around here uh to raise money was that what was yeah, that about that was, that was uh, helping a few people in a, in a third world country that were being persecuted for the faith and, and trying to help them get out of there. And uh, we ended up we ended up actually uh, couldn't help some of the people I wanted to, but some of the people that uh, that were involved in the process ended up getting help who also were being persecuted for the faith. So 
it uh, it, it worked uh, it worked great. But um, yeah, we are, our gigs were after that. This year we're playing the uh, the Peach Festival in in uh, Stony Creek, and we're playing the uh, Mudcat Festival here. So we played the odd gig. Same members in the band from from the beginning. So uh, it's it's quite fun. Do you still write music? I do. I, I write a lot of music. It's just uh, I'll, I'll record them myself. I have my own recording stuff, and I, I just I just put them on for myself, and and uh, every now and then I'll put something on the internet. Does it? Uh, I haven't heard it on the internet. Does it sound like Ray Lyle as we would know the Ray Lyle music from before, or has has times changed your your flavor and your taste? Well, that would probably be you would probably have to answer that. All right. Do you still? You said you still play publicly sometime. I mean, is it is it a rarity that you play somewhere, or is it all the time? We just don't necessarily see it now. Yeah, no, no, I don't. I don't play all the time. I, it's uh, I'm I'm really busy with the ministry work, so uh, I don't I don't get to play as much as I would like. But uh, we uh, we still do it. It doesn't sound. I'm going to let you go, but it doesn't sound. You're one of those guys. It doesn't sound like you are looking at what might have been if the rock thing had really taken off and looking back sort of, oh, geez, I wish that had worked out. It sounds like you're very content with what you're describing with the way things have worked out for you. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, if uh, if the recording stuff had happened, I mean, I mean, carrying me wouldn't have had a chance to get out there, so I'm very thankful for that. Um, but uh, if I didn't get a chance to, to be a vocal coach and get a chance to work on the ministry and develop the relationships that, I, that I've developed and, and people that I've been able to help, then that would have been sad. So uh, I'm, I'm happy the way things have gone. It's a great story, and it's, uh, it's great work you're doing, Ray, and I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us tonight. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome, Scott. Thank you. I appreciate it. That is Ray Lyle. Again, you can, um, if you're trying to remember, I mean, many of you will remember his music anyway. But if you're trying to remember what Ray Lyle sounded like and you have access to Apple Music, many of you do, go on and type in Ray Lyle. It's L-Y-E-L-L. Or go on the internet. Type in Just type in Ray Lyle and you will come across the videos and the, the songs. And y- you probably will remember them because they got just a ton of airplay once upon a time. And let me tell you this. What, the reason he was on the show tonight is because we're at this event. It was at our church. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking and there's a guy sitting across from me where it was at a dinner thing. And he's got a name tag that just says, Ray, doesn't make a stink about who he is. And there's no fuss about it. He doesn't. And I'm looking at him going, I know you. I know you. Who are you? I know you. I didn't say, who are you? I'm thinking this. And it wasn't until much, much, much later that it dawned on me and completely humble about it. Doesn't make a fuss. I mean, I was, but as soon as I saw, oh yeah, what is Ray Lyle doing these days? There you go. There is your answer. Um, but go listen to, go listen to some of his music because it is, um, it is, I think it's some of the most, some of the best Canadian music that has not gotten the credit that it deserves. Very honestly, it's, it's so listenable. And again, as I said off the top, unlike a lot of it, the lyrics aren't just ridiculous. There's actually something to it. There are stories in there and carry me in particular is, um, it's just a great song. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.